Our scripture is taken from the New Testament book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Acts, and you'll find that on page 909 of your church Bibles. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please take the copy that's in the pouch in front of you, and we'd be delighted uh, to have, for you to have that as a gift. Um, I'm going to be reading Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, were, uh, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 this is God's word. 120. That's about you all. About 120. Okay? About 120. When you think about that, that's, that's how many followers there were about the year A.D. 30. Just 120. Y'all. Okay. Now there's 2.3 billion Christians on the planet. I mean, Christianity is the most culturally, racially, uh, uh, generationally diverse faith on the planet. It's on every continent, 
It's outlasted empires and kings and wars and persecutions and plagues. And, uh, and according to an um, excellent missions resource called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement, uh, in Latin America in 1900, there were 700,000 believers. In the year 2000, there were 57 million. And the, those, are just the, those are just the Protestant Christian numbers. In Africa, in 1900, 8 million believers. In 2000, 351 million believers. In Asia, in 1900, 22 million believers. In 2000, 370 million believers. Uh, even in Europe, where Christianity has actually declined, there are signs of spiritual life. Uh, house churches, the, the organic church movement, ministries, even megachurches have been pushing back against the hollow and empty secularism of Europe. I mean, Christianity has impacted our world over the past 2,000 years in, in multiple ways. And let me just mention a few. For instance, there's the treatment of children. Did you know that it was commonplace practice in the Roman Empire uh, for uh, parents to abandon unwanted infants and just leave them out on the roadside like garbage? It was legal. Uh, the Christians said, give those babies to us. We will rear them. We will feed them. We will educate them. And so orphanages began. Because Jesus taught about the value of children. And speaking of education, do you know why we have a university system? We see it goes back in church history, uh, beginning even with, with uh, uh, monasteries. This, this love of learning and uh, a robust uh, intellectual and academic pursuit, learning about who God is. And, and so, so you get the university systems, Cambridge, Oxford, Harvard, all began out of faith-based scholarship. And then what about charitable institutions, uh, hospitals, care for the sick, medicine, all came from Christianity's concern and love for the least of these. Why do you think there's so many uh, hospitals in our country and across the world that, that are Good Samaritan Hospital. That's the name of the hospital. It's because of Christianity's influence. Uh, and then uh, let's not forget the civil rights movement in our country. And of course, the most prominent figure is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But let's not forget his predecessor at uh, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, a man by the name of Vernon Johns, who was fiery and prophetic and blunt he was just blunt he had a sermon titled one time it's safe to kill negroes in montgomery they came out to hear that you know he once said if you see a good fight get in it he was a prophetic voice that really paved the way for uh, Dr. King's efforts in the civil rights movement. But all of that had to do with Christianity, you see. And, and then, uh, uh, in literature, American scholar and 
Historian Thomas Cahill once said that the first egalitarian sentence in human literature, that's a big statement, the first egalitarian sentence in human literature came from the Apostle Paul. Now there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for we are all one in Christ. Christianity, I, sometimes I think we kind of get into our own little world and we're doing our own thing and we go to our familiar places and we forget that we're really part of a larger story, a story that God is producing and that church family is how 120 become 2.3 billion. There is a great quote in the book of Acts by an unbeliever who explains how 120 can become 2.3 billion. A Pharisee uh, who was a part of the body that put Jesus to death, Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel, the Sanhedrin, this body that put Jesus to death, were about ready to put some of the apostles to death, and Gamaliel said, just leave him alone. Leave him alone. He said this, if their undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And church family, that's how 120 become 2.3 billion because Christianity is of God. And the New Testament book of Acts makes this so very clear. And I can't think of a better book for us to uh, learn from as we continue our theme for this year and next year so the world will know because the book of Acts helps us to understand how the world knew. The book of Acts teaches us about kingdom perspective learning to think and see and view life through the perspective of Jesus' kingdom. The book of Acts gives us a sense of what relentless unity is like. And the book of Acts speaks of fearless evangelism. Now, in our Bibles, I think practically all of us have at the very top the title, Acts of the Apostles. And actually, that wasn't in the original. That was added about the year A.D. 180. It's true that these chapters deal with the activities of the apostles, and namely to Acts 1 through 12, the apostle Peter, Acts 13 to 28, the apostle Paul. But in a deeper sense, we could title this entire work, and here it is, The Unstoppable Acts of the Resurrected King. The Unstoppable Acts of the Resurrected King. And I take that from verse 1, where we read about all that Jesus began to do and teach. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the implication is clear. He's not done. 
Oh yes, Jesus said it is finished on the cross, meaning he gave the all-sufficient sacrifice uh, of his life for the sin of the world to satisfy the justice of God and my treachery. Only Jesus could do that. And Jesus said, I will build my church. And the book of Acts tells how Jesus is doing that. The book of Acts is how the Spirit of Christ empowers witnesses of Christ to speak for Christ to a world that matters to Christ. The book of Acts is about Jesus acting through His Spirit, through His people, to reach His world for the glory of His Father. Jesus is busy in the book of Acts. Now, in Acts chapter 1, where I want us to consider this morning, how is Christ acting in Acts 1? And there's a one-word answer to that question, and it's the word prepare. Prepare. In fact, the big idea is just this. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus prepares his people before he sends his people. Jesus prepares before he sends. He prepares before he deploys. He readies before he releases. And that's just like God. When God gives us a task, he never says, here's the task, now go figure it out and leave me alone. He does not do that. He comes alongside of us and he prepares us. He equips us. He trains us. He's doing that in your life right now. And he's giving you all different kinds of experiences, training experiences, and some of them are educational and deal with knowledge. Others of them are life experiences. Some of them just deal with time. It takes time. Some he uses failure and others he uses suffering. And through all of these, Jesus prepares in order to send. Now, as we look at these verses in Acts chapter 1, I want us to consider the three ways that Jesus prepares his people then. I think he does the same thing for us today. He prepares his people by many convincing proofs. That's one way. He prepares his people by the promise of the Spirit's power. That's the second way. And then the third way, he prepares us by urging patient, dependent prayer. Three ways. Convincing proofs, Spirit's power, dependent prayer. Jesus is doing all of this. So let's consider each of these, uh, beginning with many proofs. Jesus prepares us by many proofs. That's in verse 3. Verse 3 says that for 40 days after the resurrection, Christ made multiple appearances to his followers multiple times. And that is, they didn't encounter Jesus just once and then said, hey, let's start a new religion. That's not what happened. This God-man that they saw crucified, whom they saw buried, whose tomb his devoted followers visited on that first Easter morning to embalm, he was alive. And these were not visions or dreams. The disciples insisted that they had experiences in which the tangible, touchable, resurrected from the dead Jesus spoke with them, spent time with them, uh, ate with them, conversed with them, studied scripture with them, 
showing them from Moses and all of the prophets that they were all about him. So their witness was not based on a single event, but multiple experiences, multiple conversations, multiple times of teaching, and sometimes in groups of two or three, other times in groups of 12 or 500 at one time. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that Jesus overwhelmed his followers with evidence of himself. And you can understand why, can't you? You cannot be a believable messenger of the resurrected Christ if you don't believe he's resurrected. And so Jesus fixed it. Jesus said, let me fix that. And he did. Because you see, Christianity at its core is not about a curriculum. And it's not about a set of principles. It's not a playbook for life. Christianity is about a resurrected king who convinced his people not with a preponderance of proof, not with a preponderance of proof, but with clear and convincing proof. In fact, one scholar, uh, a scholar by the name of Craig Keener, says that the very phrase in verse 3, by many proofs, Ancient historians use that very phrase and it's the ancient world's way of saying irrefutable. Irrefutable. Hmm. Now what's the application of just this point for us? It's just this. It's really important that we get this. Faith is never a leap in the dark. Faith is never a leap in the dark Faith is a decision based on evidence. Faith is never a leap in the dark. Faith is a decision based on evidence. And so Luke offers overwhelming evidence to convince the reader, and that's where we get to this name, O Theophilus, that Christianity is grounded in history. It's fact-based. So let me tell you a little bit about the book of Acts. Acts is volume two of a two-part series over the life of Christ, and the volume one is Luke. So Luke Acts originally uh, were, were these uh, uh, two-volume combined set, and you can see this in, if you just flip back to Luke chapter one, and you look at verses one through four, Luke begins and he says, I'll just pick it up in verse 3, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some past time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, who is Theophilus? Well, our best information tells us that Theophilus was a, a, a person of rank. That's the phrase, most excellent. Uh, a person of means who became a Christian and who actually commissioned Luke, who was a companion of the Apostle Paul and a physician, to put together this biography about Jesus and the origins of Christianity. So Theophilus was the one who financed this investigative journal-like history of Jesus and the church and the way it worked and it's so fascinating so after Luke and Acts were written 
what happened was is Theophilus would bring in a gathering in his large home and it would be a meal and there would be a recitation of Luke and Acts. That's right. Now that sounds about as exciting as watching paint dry. But you've got to remember, they didn't have smartphones or they didn't have the type of media that they had that would have been a kind of a, 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 a performance recitation event. And so here Theophilus is bringing his friends, talk about, talk about evangelism and sharing your faith. And so, and Luke gives us just impeccably clear and beautiful uh, uh, language as he writes both of these histories. And it was, it was so good that then copies were made. And copies were then circulated among house churches uh, all over the ancient world. And, and that's really uh, how this came about. And so, um, but Luke has a purpose of it all. And the purpose of even the book of Acts goes back to verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke wants Theophilus and all who hear that this is not myth, this, this is factual. And so as we journey through the book of Acts, you're going to hear titles of Roman officials and major travel routes and titles of city officials that would only be known by someone who have personally visited those places. Local knowledge. Dozens of instances where it's clear that Luke researched eyewitness testimony and here's, here's, this is even better, Luke himself enters the story because right around Acts chapter 16, third person becomes first person. We, we traveled, we experienced all of, Luke is caught up in the story and his point is that, I'm not making this up. This really happened. This really happened. And then furthermore, Luke just presses us. Luke says, not only are these facts among the many convincing proofs, your life is a proof of Christianity's uh, truth. Your life. Your life. Proof of fearless evangelism. Acts 4.13 now when the Sanhedrin saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The Sanhedrin saw the quality of their lives and said that only Jesus can explain this. That's proof. And then there's proof of relentless unity. Look at verse 13. This is the list of the remaining apostles, the 11 apostles. Uh, Judas uh, uh, needs to be replaced, and this section talks about how Judas was replaced. But verse 13 speaks of, of the remaining 11 apostles. And you just read through each of those names, but don't read through quickly because you come to Matthew. Who was Matthew? Matthew, in his former life, was a tax collector who uh, associated with the Roman Empire, thus being a traitor to his own people, Matthew, uh, consorted with the Roman Empire, but then, but then read the very next line, there's Simon the Zealot. He hated the Roman Empire. 
absolutely hated. So don't tell me that you can't get along with someone from the opposite political team as you. Uh, Well, how is that possible for me to be able to do that? Jesus. Jesus brought them together, you see. That's proof. That's proof. And then, oh, and then there's proof of God's grace. Well, that's in verse 13 too. Because you see, some of these apostles were so very different, (laughs) Matthew and Simon the Zealot. But you know what? All 11 of them were similar in just this way. And here it is. All 11 of them had deserted Jesus in his greatest need. You remember? When Jesus was arrested? Mark 14, 50. And they all left him and fled. All of them. And yet here they are. I wonder if there's anyone here today who feels that God, you know, God can never use me. I've crossed the line with God too many times. I don't know how he could ever forgive me or love me or, or, or uh, use me. I'm damaged goods. I'm damaged goods. If you feel that way, would you just look at verse 13? You know what? God is full of surprises, but he's never surprised by our sin. And when he changed Simon's name to Peter, He knew how Simon would fail to live up to his name. He knew that uh, there would be sinking beneath the waves. He knew about the denials. He knew about the, but that changed nothing. You see, Simon's name is now Peter because Jesus said so. That's why. And, And we're not Christians. We don't gather here because we're just crushing it as fully devoted followers. Okay? We're Christians because Jesus took everything that's true of us as his and gave everything that's true of him as ours. All our sin for all his righteousness, that's why we're Christians. He swapped name tags with us. So Jesus knew what he was getting when he saved us. He knew what he was getting. And he gave Peter his name and he gives us new names He calls us saints and friends and children and heirs. And the reason why is because his name is faithful and true. Well, we need to move on. Because, you see, he prepares his people not simply with um, many convincing proofs. He prepares his people by the promise of his Spirit's power. Jesus said in verses 4 and 5, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That word baptize uh, literally means to immerse, uh, to dye a cloth. And the idea is that once a cloth is immersed in the dye, the cloth is forever changed. And in the same way, once the Holy Spirit overwhelms and floods your life with His presence, then you are forever changed changed you are empowered you will be fierce in the old testament the holy spirit was often identified with the great prophets ezekiel deborah daniel jesus is saying with his death burial resurrection and the outpouring of his spirit all of you are going to be daniel all of you are going to be deborah all of you are going to be ezekiel 
And just as God said to Ezekiel, I'll make your forehead as hard as flint, and so he did his apostles, and that's why they, they said to their persecutors, we must obey God rather than men. Well, after this, verse 6 says they came together and they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Christ answered that question, but not the way they thought. You see, in the disciples' point of view, the disciples were almost giddy at the fact of, of God restoring Israel to the good old days, you know, of David and Solomon, where all the nations would come to Israel and gather around Israel. That's really not what, including Rome. That's not what Jesus had in mind. See, Jesus had in mind the new Israel will scatter throughout the entire globe. And the disciples had in mind this idea of political power, power to force the nations to come to them. That's not what Jesus had in mind at all. The power that he speaks of is not the power to launch legions. It's the power to witness. It's the power to testify. It's the power to forgive. It's the power to love. It's the power to be patient. It's the power to be a peacemaker, to reconcile, to speak truth. Jesus said, that's the kind of power that you receive when the Spirit comes upon you. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And by the way, verse 8 is the table of contents for the book of Acts. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So Jerusalem pretty much is a is about Acts 1 through 7, Acts 1 through 7. Uh, uh, Judea and Samaria, pretty much about Acts 8 through 12, Acts 8 through 12, and then Acts 13 to 28, it, it pretty much covers uh, the, the, the known world, the, to the end of the world, the, the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire. Whereas Luke's gospel begins and ends in the temple, if you see Luke's gospel, the beginning of Luke's gospel is in the temple, the end of the Luke's gospel is in the temple. In the book of Acts, Acts begins with the temple but ends in Rome because Rome, the capital of the empire, represents the entire known world. And in 30 years, the gospel traversed the Roman Empire. 30 years, three decades that changed the world. And this happened without internet, Without cell phones, the fastest travel was on horseback, and most of the time it was foot travel. The gospel went forward. In fact, the very last word in the book of Acts is the word unhindered. Unhindered. Oh my goodness, the Holy Spirit's power brought that about. They were able to be witnesses about this resurrected king. But, but here's the thing we need to understand, too, and this is what makes it practical for us. Jesus is equipping them with his Holy Spirit, not just so that they will be witnesses of the gospel throughout the world. Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses. That is to say, I want you to give witness to the quality of life in the new heavens and the new earth. 
Jesus says, I want your lives to demonstrate what normal looks like in the life to come. Because life here and now is not normal. But the life to come is. And I want your life to exemplify that there is a life beyond this life. And here is a taste of that life. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit. Who when He floods our lives and takes up residence in your life and in my life, He begins to generate qualities that we cannot produce on our own. And we cannot display the kind of life that Christ wants on our own. We need help. And Jesus has promised help. The help of His own Spirit. And I'll just say, again, church family, these last six weeks, if you're new here to the church in the last six weeks, I believe that you have seen the Holy Spirit's work through the lives of the saints here. What you've learned is that this church is not built on the personality of the pastor. This church is built on the Holy Spirit flooding God's people so that they express love in unique, gifted ways. And I believe that's why we're strong. So what's your gift? How can you bring the attractive, winsome life of heaven where you live? How can you do that? Well, verse 9 says, when he said these things, when he said these things, the most amazing thing happened. (laughs) As they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. I mean, five times Luke uses verbs and uh, nouns that speak of sight, gazing, looking on, watching. Jesus was lifted and a cloud took him from their sight. Now, often we read this and we think science fiction. We think some close encounters of the third kind spaceship. We think, well, Jesus texted an Uber ride to heaven and it whisked him to a galaxy far, far away. And we don't know where he is, but he's some way, way over. And that's not what's going on here. That's not. The disciples saw Jesus step from the realm of earth to the realm of heaven. So it's not, well, where'd he go? Like, you know, the Wizard of Oz floating in some balloon to Kansas. Where'd he go? No, they knew where, they saw where he went. He ascended to his rightful throne. The ascension uh, is more a declaration of status than it is a determination of location. Jesus is right here, folks. You just can't see him. One day, we will. But this ascension asserts that Jesus' reign is both private and public, visible and invisible. Just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not in charge. The ascension is Jesus' exclusive claim to be creator, ruler, redeemer, and savior of all. The sole redeemer, ruler, and savior of all. And the point of the ascension is this. He who resides in heaven reigns on earth still. The old order's been defeated. There's a new emperor in charge, and his name is Jesus. And these Disciples were just transfixed looking at all this happening as as Christ 
took his seat on this, this regal throne. And then all of a sudden, psst, psst, gentlemen, over here. Hey, look, there's 11. Men of Galilee, <laughs> behold, <laughs> behold, Luke says. Two men stood by them in white robes. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Uh, the message is clear. The message of the ascension is clear. Look up. Stop looking up. Now look out. Your king is where he needs to be. Now, are you where you need to be? Luke wants us, he doesn't want us to get too cozy or distracted about times and dates of the return of Christ. Luke wants us serving and writing and thinking and relating and worshiping and singing. He wants us working and, and in finance and medicine and athletics and education and business. He wants us married or not, single or not, parents or not. He wants us to do all that we do for God's glory and the good of God's people. The ascension calls us to look up to Jesus. Okay, he's in charge. Now stop looking up. Now look out because there's a world of need. And you're about to interact that world of need once the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The mission of King Jesus is now our mission. And that's where we need to go. And that takes us to this third way of preparation. Many proofs, Spirit's power, patient prayer. Now, after those angels showed up, he kind of scolded the disciples. See, the temptation is for us to say, okay, let's get to work. Let's get to work. We're Americans. Let's get to work. And that's not the message. The message is no, not let's get to work. The message is let's get on our knees. Stay in the city and pray. And notice how prayer dominates the book of Acts. Acts 14 says they were devoting themselves to prayer in one accord. Verse 24 says, prayer involved the selection of Matthias in replacing Judas. In, Matthew, uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. They were praying. In Acts chapter 3, verse 1, when Peter and John go to the temple, it's during the hour of prayer. In Acts chapter 4, when they were persecuted, they prayed, but they did not ask God to take away their persecutors, but they pleaded with the Lord for boldness. Speak your word with all boldness. H.B. Charles once said that prayer is the most objective measurement of our dependence on God. The things you pray about are the things you trust God to handle, and the things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust that you can handle on your own. So do you need faith to see beyond your circumstances? Do you need divine intervention for a difficult situation? Do you need relief from pain, grief, or sorrow? Do you need healing? Uh, do you need a, a, a restored relationship? Do you need victory over some besetting sin in your life? H.B. Charles says there's much to do after you pray, but there is nothing for you to do until you pray. So pray. And that's how chapter 1 concludes. It, with, with anticipation. You know, what's going to happen next? No, no. But Jesus is preparing us because he always does that. He prepares us before he sends us. Convincing proofs, spirit's power, dependent prayer.
That's Acts 1. Uh, so when I was in the hospital, about the time I was really feeling sick, you know, each day the housekeeper came and uh, cleaned uh, my room. Her name was Coco. And uh, she has four daughters. She's from Congo. Um, she struck up a friendship, a relationship, a conversation with Sarah. And um, found out Sarah's a pastor's wife. And she said, well, I'm a Christian. I'd like to pray for your husband. And so after she had cleaned the bathroom and cleaned my room and I was sitting in a reclining chair, and Sarah was, I tried to stay out of the bed uh, until I just wanted to sleep at night, but I, so I was in a reclining chair. And so she said, may I pray for you, Pastor? And I said, of course, please. And so, so she dropped to her knees, and she put her hands on my feet. And I'm telling you, she gave the fiercest prayer I've ever heard. You remember the parable that Jesus told of the widow beating on the door of the judge? I want justice. That's what this lady did. For about two minutes, she prayed. It wasn't just three sentences in Jesus' name, amen. It was a good two minutes. She was banging on the door of heaven. Heal this man, you know. And, uh, and she prayed it all in French. I didn't understand a word she said. <laughs> but, then, but I understood everything she said, you know? And when she said amen, you know, I mean, I looked up at Sarah and, and we, were, we were just flooded with tears. And I have to believe that that, that dear woman's prayer, and you know, there's a hierarchy in our world there's a hierarchy in our world. And the house cleaners in the eyes of the world aren't on top. But I have to believe that that dear woman's prayer was just as instrumental in my healing as the surgeon's scalpel. I do. And when she finished praying like that, I just thought, I want that. Whatever you got, I want that. I want it. I want it. Because that's dependent, patient, fierce prayer and that comes that can only come from the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit who descended because the resurrected Christ is on the throne the unstoppable acts of the resurrected King and we know who he is don't we Heavenly Father as we share around this time of communion thank you for your grace and mercy and thank you for your love. Thank you for teaching me so many ways your truth and your presence. And thank you for dear Coco, too. Lord, would you help us find someone today whom we might bow before their knees and bang on the door of heaven on their behalf. There's much to do after we pray. There's nothing to do until we pray. And so we pray. In Jesus' name, church said, amen.